This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 376, December the 3rd, 1996. In this hour, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushduni, and I will discuss uh, some of the questions which a few of you have sent in, and we hope you... <clears throat> We'll send in more. But uh, before we do, I'd like to share something with you from a book, a very interesting book published in 1943. And I hope someday I can pick up an earlier book by Maurice Collis on the great within. This one is The Land of the Great Image, being experiences of Friar Manrique in Arakan. Now, I'm going to read this passage to you because this is the kind of thing one encounters over and over again. And we tend to sweep it under the carpet as being true of uh, backward peoples, primitive peoples, and so on and so forth, without confronting them. At any rate, Collis describes the experience of this friar as he goes through India, particularly the uh, oh, uh, Juggernaut Festival, or as he gives it, Jagarnath the most important temple in the kingdom of Bengal, he observes, is that of Jagannath in Orissa. It stands on the seashore. He goes on to describe the festival which took place in June, the crowds of pilgrims, the rich offerings, the curious procession of triumphal chariots, the maniacal excitement, the yogis and devotees heavily manacled on reaching the temple door, free to themselves of their chains as if by occult power, the shouting, the wild chants, the scurrying naked mob. As the great car of Jagannath approaches, the hysteria reaches its climax, and some of the yogis and pilgrims, seized with frenzy of foam on their lips, fling themselves beneath the wheels and are crushed to death. Others thrust into the muscles of their back, hooks attached by ropes to a wheel at the top of a pole, and are whirled round like flying boats at a fair, swinging out over the roadway, their blood dripping on the worshippers below, and continuing thus to swing until they are dead. Such a scene witnessed in the heyday of Hinduism, before modern legislation introduced by alien conquerors, had transferred, formed it from a spectacle for the alienist into a bit of local color for the globetrotter. Must have been horrific in its subliminal force, nor is it surprising that in his description of it, Friar Manrique should have referred to the pit, to the rebel angels, and to the captain, the devil. Certainly, had Rubens, who was alive at the time, been tempted to make it the subject of a great canvas, his Baroque composition would have whirled with demons. 
But what the friar has to say of a festival he witnessed on the island of Saugar, which lies opposite Hidgley, at the mouth of the Hooghly River, is stranger still. At one time Saugar was full of flourishing temples, but had so frequently been looted by Portuguese pirates from Dianga, raiders in the employ of the Aracanese, who kidnapped its inhabitants and sold them as slaves, that when Manrique was there the buildings were in ruins, and it was only on the occasion of a festival of great antiquity and importance that for the time being it was frequented. Then great crowds came from all parts of Bengal, though at the risk of being caught in a pirate raid. Their mood, however, was one of extreme exaltation. Danger of pirates would have seemed a trifle compared with the self-immolation they contemplated. The pilgrims on reaching the ruined temple, whose festival it was, first had their heads and beards shaved. Then they washed in the temple tank and anointed themselves with oil. So purified, they entered the shrine, both men and women, where in the half-light they prostrated themselves before a deity. The music, the conscious wailing, hot wafts of scent from flowers or incense, worked on minds open to bewitchment. It seemed that the god would take them if in utmost humility they offered all they had. Prone on the ground, they offered him their lives, their tears gushing as they begged his acceptance. Certain at last that he would accept, they rose from the ground and, wild with happiness, rushed to the beach. Close in, waiting, were a multitude of sharks. In an ecstasy, men and women waded out into the sea. The sharks immediately darted among them. Since they are accustomed and thus encouraged by constantly tasting human face, face, flesh, they became so bloodthirsty that they rushed up fiercely, even at a mere shadow, comments Manrique. This scene has all the horror of an hallucination, but sometimes it was anticlimactic. Toward the end of the festival, the sharks would be so gorged that either they did not wait by the beach, or if indeed they were there, they swam idly about, at the most, nosed the offered victim and rejected him. For him so rejected by a shark, it was as if God had rejected him, and he would leave the water, overcome with grief, and be inconsolable, for if God had turned away from him, where could he go? What could he do? He was alone in the vastness. There was nothing, the supreme horror of nothing, in front of him. Now, what can we make of such a scene? Well, that can be duplicated many, many times over in the literature of the world of religions. Man is essentially a religious creature, and his religion, whether it 
is the religion of these people or the religion of the humanists. Even when he feels he is most rational, leads him to all kinds of irrationality. And some of the things contemplated today by humanists in the way of eliminating people in order to let the wilderness return is incredible. They want the grizzlies to take over the Northwest, which means if a grizzly population is restored, no human population can exist. If as many grizzlies as once inhabited the Pacific Northwest are there again, there will be no people. And yet they calmly project such a vision for the future. Men are religious creatures. If they have a false religion, they are most dangerous. Well, the environmentalists are simply copying the East Indian religions. Yes. Uh, you know, the Environmental Species Act originally was to protect the larger animals, uh, uh, grizzly bears and so forth, and then they changed it very subtly to include all of these insects and lower forms of uh, life so that now uh, you are forced to, if there's a fly or a bug or something that happens to live on your property, you, have, you are forced now by the federal government uh, under uh, pain of uh, imprisonment or uh, confiscation of the property or heavy fines if you disturb that habitat. Yes. So in effect, the government now has nationalized all property in the United States, not for the benefit of the people, but for the benefit of bugs. I mean, they've, it's the ultimate insanity. Yes. And it's the same thing that, that, you know, has made it difficult for people in India uh, all this time because uh, you can't kill a fly because they believe in reincarnation and that might be your your grandfather or something. And they, uh, <coughs> well, a great deal of development of all kinds is halted in some cities in Southern California because it is claimed that uh, it may endanger the habitat of a sand fly. Now, who in the world would want to preserve sand flies? Well, the, the great question is, is if these people are humanists, and if they believe in evolution, why don't they just let it work? Why interfere with it? It's like the saving of the condor. They spent millions and millions of dollars to keep these condors from dying off when there's no more food for them. I mean, they're a vulture. They're about the ugliest looking bird on the face of the earth, and their only function was to clean up, uh, in the scheme of things it appeared, was to clean up uh, excess uh, animals or stray animals that no longer exist, and the condors were dying off because there was no more food left for them. You know, so if they really believe in evolution, why are they unwilling to let it work? They believe man shouldn't... They believe... Environmentalism is basically applied evolution. If they, they, but they're not consistent. They're saying man is too intelligent. Man 
as an animal is so intelligent he's affecting the evolution of the other species. Therefore, we must regulate ourselves so that we stop affecting other species and that we let other species once again acquire a predominance in nature that they once had. But, so therefore, what they're saying is that evolution doesn't apply to man. Man's evolved too far. We've got to retard man's evolution to allow the other species to, to basically do some catching up and become predominant again. So they're consistent in the fact that they're evolutionists, but they're inconsistent in the fact that they don't believe that, that, that man should have been allowed to evolve to this extent. But, but re regarding these pagan practices, it just goes to show you that man is not a creature of reason. Man is a creature of faith, and he's controlled by what he believes. And if he believes it's the will of God to feed himself to the sharks, then he'll do it because he's a creature of faith. He's, he acts upon what he believes. And that's true whether you're an environmentalist or whether you're a Hindu or anything else. You act in terms of what you believe. Well, this session we're going to answer or try to answer some questions uh, different people have sent in. We have two from Susan Claire Leffel. Uh, the first is about uh, nationalism, nations, and the nation state. What is the biblical concept of nation as opposed to the 19th century idea of national determination? Currently, it seems that we are being conditioned to regard the idea uh, that the United States are self-governing cultural entities that is, nation-states, uh, as illegitimate, as well as insufferably rude and selfish? That's a good question and an important one. First of all, the idea of a world state is a religious idea. It goes back to the Tower of Babel in its present form, a one-world order based upon man and his independence of God. But as Christians, we believe that the uh, only possible one world order is under God and Christ. Now, the basic human group is the family. And the nations of Bible times were really uh, larger families. Uh, the tribe is an extended family and the nation is a collection of related tribes. In the modern age, nations are no longer necessarily related groups. For example, France was originally a Celtic uh, country, and that's where the name uh, Gaul comes from in Latin uh, references to it. The only uh, Gaelic people there are the Bretons nowadays, and they want independence. The other parts of uh, France were once independent realms. Uh, in varying degrees, they still have a, a somewhat differing character. In fact, their 
languages before the French Revolution were very different. You might call them dialects, but some were not understandable to others. But with nationalism, especially with the French Revolution, a kind of standardized uh, French is spoken. Germany was more than 600 realms before Bismarck. Spain still has trouble because it has the Basques and also the Galicians who are also Gales and they don't get along too well. And the other parts of uh, Spain, descendants of the Goths, uh, are very differing uh, traditions and characters. So the nation state is a somewhat artificial entity. There are, in most cases, no natural boundaries. Some uh, island nations in the Pacific uh, made up of natives of a particular kind are valid uh, extended nation states, uh, but uh, the others are not. We in the United States have uh, a variety of peoples. They come from all kinds of backgrounds, originally primarily European, uh, ostensibly mainly English, but the Germanic element equaled if it did not surpass the uh, English element by the beginning of this century. There are Asiatic and black peoples. There is uh, a growing uh, merging of some of these peoples. The Asiatic are being absorbed rather rapidly. The Hispanics are trying to maintain their independence uh, as far as the leadership is concerned, but there's a great deal of uh, intermarriage between Hispanics and Anglo-Americans so that we are moving in this country more than in almost any other country, if not every other country in the world, towards a more homogeneous population. Now, the nation-state, I think, has a validity in the plan of God, but not a world-state which is a religious entity, formed to create a one-world order, a one-world government, in contempt of God. Well, with that introduction, Douglas, would you like to comment on these entities? Well, I, I have a question for you. Um, your vast background in reading and history that's always puzzled me. In the First World War, a lot of countries were artificially created. Yes. And it's always puzzled me what the motivation, the true motivation, I haven't run across it so far. Uh, one of the popular uh, answers to why countries like Yugoslavia were created uh, totally disregarding the ethnic and historical backgrounds of the, the various groups that made up the country, uh, and particularly in view of the, of the fact that the First World War was started because of strife between 
uh, two groups, uh, yet they made the same mistake when the war was over by putting together artificial countries with artificial boundaries yes. which took in widely diverse uh, historically competing and antagonistic groups. And this was done throughout Africa. I always thought uh, that uh, they, that European countries that wanted uh, colonial uh, control over these countries wanted to keep them uh, divided, keep them weak by keeping them divided with a lot of internal strife so that they could uh, uh, capitalize on the natural resources that were in, in countries like uh, the Congo or and some of the other uh, Central African countries where they had vast stores of natural resources. Uh, but what what is what's the real purpose? Why would they make the same mistake after the war that they made before the war by creating these countries with artificial boundaries which were obviously going to fly apart as soon as the uh, uh, any kind of control, like in Yugoslavia, was taken on. The purpose is political, international politics, the concerns of the major powers. The uh, whole of the Balkans, as it was seeking freedom from Turkey, wanted to be one kingdom <clears throat> under Serbian rule. But the great powers did not want that. It would be the most powerful nation in Europe, probably. So they opposed it. <clears throat> After the war, they placated Serbia by creating the complex entity Yugoslavia. <clears throat> but the trouble was, <clears throat> just as before World War I, there were countries like uh, Germany and France and England working <clears throat> to divide the Balkans. So after the war, they were ready to use the new countries they had created as puppets. The same was true with Czechoslovakia, which has since fallen apart. It's doubtful that uh, for years to come, the lesser Slavs of uh, the Balkans can never be, again be united. And they were in spirit uh, as they were seeking to overthrow Turkey. In Africa, the cultures are tribal. And uh, the various colonial powers simply took over an area and ruled it uh, without regard to how the tribes felt or the fact that they had diverse peoples under one authority. Well, it worked, as long as you had a foreign power controlling, say, Nigeria or the Congo or the Sudan or some other area. But once they released them, maintained the same boundaries, and handed them over to natives who were totally different, they created a situation for war and massacre. One of the first was of the Igbos in Nigeria who were Christian, who were massacred by the Muslims. And uh, we're continuing to see that kind of pattern, for example, in the Sudan, where it's been going on since the 60s. So <clears throat> what they did 
when each of them gave up their colony, they retained a kind of uh, oversight over it, so that they have helped with some of the financial problems, they've helped with the military problems, and so you have an English zone of uh, jurisdiction and a French zone of jurisdiction, uh, that sort of thing. So that uh, the old lines were maintained, but the new governments cannot maintain them because they fall immediately under the power of one party or another, the Hutus or the Tutsis, in which case they start killing each other. So the, these are very, very artificial entities. And uh, of course, <clears throat> their solution now is to try to get UN troops in there to solve the matter. But it would mean that the UN would ultimately possibly be at war with every side in the situation. Well, after uh, World War II, it's uh, another thing that puzzles me is uh, why the United States, uh, uh, Roosevelt and some of his meetings with uh, foreign powers deciding carving up the real estate after World War II, uh, these men had to be smart enough to foresee the consequences of removing the colonial powers without a long period of transition. I mean, they, they really were parties to, to, to genocide. They were, they, were, they were just as culpable as the people who wielded the machetes you are giving them credit for being too smart. You see, all the time they held these colonies, they were publishing propaganda about the decline of superstition, the decline of cannibalism, the decline of slavery, and so on and so on. And they were believing their own propaganda. And the intellectuals were believing it. The men on the field could not persuade them otherwise. So they were sure they, these people were ripe for uh, a modern social order. One of the first presidents of an African nation was one of their products. I think he was an Oxford-educated man, but I'm not sure. It was some European university. But after a while, the people rose in rebellion against him, and they ate him, you see. <laughs> the perception is different. They are so sure that uh, civilization is advancing. It's only going to move in one direction, forward. They cannot see regression. Well, most of those early African leaders were Marxists. They had gone, they had been educated at the Sorbonne oh, yes. in Paris, and they were out and out Marxists, and they became uh, the most terrible despots and tyrants on the face of the earth, uh, massacred large numbers of people. Uh, the men were not fit by experience, or temperament, uh, or political motivation to to govern those countries with the problems that they had and the, the antagonism between the various tribes. 
why would uh, the major powers, the French, the British, the Belgians, the United States, it, it seems incredible that that pool of political that pool of political minds could be that stupid not to foresee the consequences of the sudden release of control over those populations. Because they believed they had led them forward to uh, such a, an extent, and had provided leadership that was so enlightened, the people would gladly follow them. Well, it's the uh, it's the great <laughs> the greatest uh, example in the world. Uh, why not to trust their uh, their judgment? Well, then or now, one of the Spanish uh, colonies in Africa is way down economically and morally since the Spanish released it, and one uh, World Bank officer, well, I'll go into this some other time. Uh, well, to continue my thought, in this Spanish colony, <clears throat> a World Bank official found that the president had uh, meat lockers full of human body parts. He was a cannibal. And he found he was dealing with this kind of person. On the other hand, I had a doctor tell me once that some of the finest surgeons, the most knowledgeable that he'd ever encountered, were native black Africans. In Africa, you have extremes of uh, advanced and backward peoples. And we cannot be realistic until we face up to the fact that both are there. Now, our people on the oh, high level of government who decide these things believe that mankind is getting better and better and that all you have to do is to advance the political focus and the people will improve. And it's nonsense. It just isn't so. Maybe they just get more experience over there carving people up on the job training. <laughs> well, uh, Susan Claire Leffel also asked the question about the American Indians, including what are we to call them today? Native Americans, Amerindians, who knows what? And uh, she asked if my experience with them differs from the images conveyed in literature and the media, very definitely, to a great extent. Now, <clears throat> let me begin by saying that when I first went to the reservation, there was a study completed on a national level of the uh, IQ of American Indian children going across country from tribe to tribe. These tests were uh, so written that people whose language was not primarily English could still be tested accurately. What the test showed was that the American Indian youngsters 
were the most intelligent single group in the United States. But culturally, uh, morally, uh, economically, they were at the bottom of the barrel. And the reason, of course, is a religious one. The kind of uh, background they had, the economic security from cradle to grave by the reservation system, gave no one any incentive to advance. As a matter of fact, those who do a high percentage leave the reservations. An anthropologist who some years ago uh, answered a question about the uh, terrible condition of the American Indian said, uh, if you want the real American Indian, look at the uh, downtown section of any city and you will spot more Indians there than you will on any reservation. Most of the American Indians have been absorbed into the general population. There are always Indians leaving the reservation to enter the job market elsewhere, intermarrying, no longer a part of the reservation. More than a few of the youngsters I knew on the reservation are no longer there. They've gone to the cities. They've either gone to the bottom very quickly if they don't have it, or they advance. They become a part of the middle class and occasionally better than that. So my attitude is this, and I wrote a paper on this in the 40s which was published in newspapers and magazines all over the country, a few million copies of it, so that I started at the top and worked my way down to the bottom as far as an audience is concerned. And in it I said if you took any 100 white families, put them on a reservation with cradle-to-grave security, no taxes, nothing to worry about, in a couple of generations, they would be no different from the present-day inhabitants of the reservations. You would destroy any incentive to get ahead. Now, it is remarkable that in spite of uh, this reservation system, some American Indians do manage to advance on the reservation or leave the reservation and advance. But most American Indians are now part of the general American population. I just wonder how much, uh, you know, there's been a nativistic movement among Indians over the past 20, 30 years, uh, you know, to try to, quotes, regain their culture. And I wonder how much of that is hype so that they can maintain a separate nation's uh, status uh, to manipulate the federal government into letting them go into the gambling business because there this seems to be an enormous push all over the country to enter the gambling business and if they don't have to pay taxes and they don't have to yes. comply with any building codes or any other things that anybody else has to uh, maybe perhaps that's more of the motivation for their nativistic movement than uh, than anything else well I saw the beginnings 
of that movement in the late 40s, at that time Marxists were behind it. It soon became a kind of a liberal thing. Mm -hmm. A number of the younger Indians picked up on it. I can remember the older Indians ridiculing, ridiculing them. They regarded it as nonsense. But it spread. They've come to believe the mythology about their past and how they were robbed by the white man and so on and so forth. They forget that uh, many of the tribes had to resort to cannibalism in the winters, that their life was a very meager one. And before the coming of the white man and uh, getting horses, it was desperate. Well, some of them have uh, gained uh, a bit of uh, cunning and intelligence in this whole uh, gambling bit. And the sad fact is it will increase their uh, unwillingness to work. It will mean for many of them the income from gambling will make it unnecessary to work. The Indians are now at a very uh, tragic point. They are seeing their salvation in things like gambling, but at the same time they are developing a high rate of suicide. Alcoholism is epidemic among them. Oh yes, it has been for a long time. First, some peoples have no built-in immunity to liquor. Different races have uh, differing immunities to alcoholism. The two with the lowest ratio of alcoholism are Jews and Armenians. At the bottom are a number of peoples, among them the Irish and very notably the American Indians. It takes very little to make an Indian drunk. Uh, he uh, can take what uh, the average American can drink without feeling the slightest effect, and he is very drunk. Perhaps the United States should declare the American Indian assimilated and eliminate the uh, reservation system. Well, I don't think they're about ready to do that. The Indian service is the most entrenched of bureaucracies. Hopefully, as more and more leave, the reservations will begin to die out, but uh, that would be a long, long ways in the future. Perhaps they should put up signs at the entrance to all Indian reservations. If you're the last one out, please turn out the light. Yes. Well, to qualify as, as an Indian today, you only have to have, I believe it's one-sixteenth. Mm -hmm. It Indian depends blood. on the tribe, yes. And um, you can get various <clears throat> scholarships and so forth. I used to ask my, sometimes I've, I've frequently asked my students when it comes to the issue of Indians comes up. So, well, 
how many of you are, you know, Scotch? How many of you are Irish? How many of you are German? How many of you are English? And they raise their hands. And for each one, I'll get, you know, because uh, some of them know that they're more than one uh, nationality in their background. Ever so for any, any one group, maybe a fourth of them will raise their hands. And I said, well, how many of you have Indian blood in you? And usually over half the class, because they all know that and they're proud of it. But it's, it's often the biggest group. Yes. More, more so will raise their hand than will raise it for English mm -hmm. or, or Irish mm -hmm. or German. Is there anybody? And I say, well, there, there are the, there's the Indians. That's what happened to the Indians. We mm -hmm. killed them out, didn't we? Are there any of them that raise their hand for all of them? Well, some of them probably could because some of them really don't. It's, it's amazing mm -hmm. the students who, who, who really have no idea what their, their heritage yeah, is. Their parents don't even know. There, there is, in fact, there is a movement now to put um, American as a nationality because mm -hmm. there are many people who have so many nationalities in their background, they don't know where they, what all they are. Well, there's been uh, such an emphasis on division and... Uh, uh, exclu exclusiveness in our society. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you'd hear terms on the radio and and public uh, figures, uh, uh, government declaring Brotherhood Week and uh, uh, patriotism expressed in terms of being an American and uh, fairly recent arrivals from Europe I can remember when I was a kid going to collect for the newspaper and you go to a home where there were Italians or French or uh, some other nationality and the children would, would come to the door and when they found out it was the uh, paper boy collecting for the paper, they would say in their native tongue to the parents, it's the paper boy come to collect. And I would hear the parents speak English, we're in America now. And, you know, that's just not done anymore. I mean, currently, uh, they encourage their kids to speak the, the native language and not to assimilate mm -hmm. because they're really not, there's no pride in being an American, apparently. They're, they only find pride in remaining uh, with the, uh, the nationality from the country that they came from. And that's a very dangerous thing for, for any country. It kind of brings you uh, back to what we were discussing before. You talked about how nations at one time were rather tribal, and when there was, when there were fewer mass migrations, and they and they tended to occur more slowly over centuries, and assimilation was very slow. Um, when you were related to a people, for instance, a classic example would be the Hebrews. Obviously, you know their their origin comes from Abraham and where the tribes came from, and such. There, there was a, a more of a family sense to a nation and a, a mm -hmm. common bond of, of, of blood and relation. Yeah. And as, as nations began to cross each other's paths more and assimilate more, for instance, England was, was Celtic and then it had Scandinavian influences and uh, Germanic influences and French influences. Uh, history became a common bond mm -hmm. amongst nations. And I've noticed in, in our culture today, what do we attack? We attack, attack the history, ignore the history, rewrite the history, or show contempt for the history mm -hmm. to destroy a people and their identification as a nation. Then there's been a t an intentional effort to um, destroy in the increase immigration. Mm -hmm. So you are literally changing 
the the composition of a nation and the net result is it's, it's people have a revolutionary view of what they are and some people aren't sure what it is to well, be an American or what it is to be English. That's what I was just going to point out that all of these techniques of cutting people off from their roots like defaming the founders of the country, um, uh, demonizing the leaders of the country, continually uh, attacking the motives and the integrity of the leaders and the founders of the country is a Marxist tactic. You know that's that's how you cut the people loose from their from their past. That's how you control them. Uh, you know, we have ceased, we, we really have ceased to become Americans. One of the alarming things is that uh, it's a subtle thing, but I think it's significant nevertheless, is when uh, U.S. military personnel, either in the field or at home, are being interviewed by the media, and the subject comes up of, why are you here? And the answer, unfailingly, is we have a job to do. It's not to serve my country, as you would have heard in World War II or World War I, or even serve my country's interests. It's to do just to do a job. I mean, it's like hired mercenaries. Mm -hmm. that, that's changed very dramatically in, 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 in recent years. Our, our military is basically up for hire. And now it's basically up for hire to whatever the United Nation wants it to do. Yeah. We, we, we've turned the American military from being a patriotic organization, one that serves mm -hmm. their country, and basically they're up for grabs wherever job they, we have for them anywhere in the world for whatever purpose. Um, well, we are ceasing to become a nation state. We are moving rapidly toward becoming simply a, a culture cut apart from from anything else. We have become a, an economic entity in the world rather and, than a nation and when state. We, and when we cut ourselves off from our history, from our from from a ethnic language. roots, a common language, what's left? A political, a political entity. And you are what the government says you are. Mm -hmm. And the government is, is, is further defines what you are and, and what the Who nation else is doing does. This? You know, would the French allow that? Not for a minute. Would the Japanese allow that? Not for a minute. Why is the United States the only major country in the world that but is it, allowing but it itself? Is, to it be is happening in many other countries. There's a tremendous influx of of non-French into French. Many, uh, very often, they're French-speaking, but from Africa, a tremendous influx of 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 people from uh, Africa into uh, French. They're in, in France in recent years. England. Uh, a lot of Islamic influence in uh, in England also. So there 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 is a, a tremendous amount of, of mixture just in the last 20, 30 years. Well, uh, to get back to the Indians, most of these gambling casinos have been established uh, on reservations where there are very few Indians. Just a handful that uh, were surviving there and they caught on to this gimmick and are getting rich off of it. The major reservations today are in areas that are a long ways from uh, major urban centers that can pro provide the gamblers. For example, in the Plains states, uh, the reservations are usually 
some distance from a major urban center. And we must remember that major urban centers are magnets for peoples. I'll, and be I'll bet you that what we're going to see in the next few years because of the tie-in between the Indians' desire to move closer to population mm -hmm. centers so that they can start gambling casinos and the environmental uh, environmentalists to preserve the areas where the Indians live now, you're going to see land swaps just like they did up around uh, uh, Yellowstone. You know, there was a big gold mine company up there that had a place all scoped out that was near uh, uh, Yos uh, not Yosemite, but Yellowstone Park, and the federal government intervened and forced those guys to give that mine up that they'd spent hundreds of millions of dollars to develop and traded off some other land somewhere else so that they couldn't, they wouldn't mine that particular property. And I'll mm -hmm. bet you the Indians and the federal government are going to get together and scratch each other's back. Well, one of the interesting things about population, whether we like it or not, is the big centers attract more people and more people. When you realize that over half the Canadians live within 50 miles of the U.S. border, that tells you something. That's where the trade is. That's where they can make the most money, shipping, buying, whatever. All right. Well, for all peoples, the city is a magnet. And uh, you're going to see in the drift to the cities increase, I believe, from the reservations. This will compel them to make changes. They'll either fall very quickly to the bottom level or they're going to shape up. And I'm happy to say that a, a very good percentage of Indians who move to a big city do make the grade. They are faced with competition. They come from a tough background which in the past competed with other peoples and with uh, the weather and with wild animals. I believe it'll bring something uh, out of them. I recall very vividly this very intelligent and superior young Indian who uh, was highly decorated in the island hopping campaign in the South Pacific in World War II. No white soldier I knew had anything but horror for that island uh, ca uh, hopping campaign. And this uh, young man, when he came home on furlough, came by and visited, and uh, he told me going through uh, this little track in the jungle and uh, how it was a horror to most of the soldiers because suddenly out of the jungle, the thick vegetation, <coughs> a Japanese soldier would emerge in the back of the line, kill the back man and the man in front of him and keep on killing as he worked his way up. The old uh, Sergeant York technique. Yes, and uh, it was a horror. And they were always looking over their shoulders. 
and I asked this young man how he liked that, and he said, oh, it was great, great, yeah. just like the stories my great-grandfather used to tell me. Mm-hmm. Well, for him it was marvelous. Peacetime was hard. Mm-hmm. It brought something out in him. And there's a great deal there in the Indian that I hope uh, adversities in the future will bring out in him. I'm, a, I'm afraid a lot of these reservations though, have been created by treaties and they can't be eliminated except um, easily. And no yes. matter how many Indians move off the reservation, there'll always be a few who will stay there and collect the same amount of government funds. <clears throat> This is going to have to be a major movement to, to, to basically protect the Indian from, from the government. We've already done... Are, are the Indians that are still on the reservation, <coughs> would it be fair to say they're, they're, they're misfits of the Indians? Is that fair or unfair to say? Well, uh, yes and no. Some of them are very superior people who love their people, their tribe, and are trying to do their best to help them. Others are uh, people who are at the bottom of the barrel morally. They're alcoholics. They are almost incapable of uh, normal functioning. And the reservation provides them with a haven. It's uh, a sad situation there are many wonderful people on any reservation. Uh, the women often are the ones who keep a family going. They're a hard-working, dedicated lot, many of them. On the one occasion we had an Indian judge who was a woman, it was wonderful. She laid down the law in no uncertain terms to all the young Indians who came before her, and they were very happy to see her leave the bench when her term was over. She was a marvelous judge. So you have your differences, as in any group, but alcoholism becomes endemic by about the fifth grade. Your biggest problem with your students is uh, simply that they are alcoholics very, very early. Now that may have changed for the better or the worse, I don't know. But uh, it is so easily available and uh, they simply have no ability to resist it. I know one man, a uh, federal employee there on the reservation, used to say that uh, some of the Indians just smelling a cork would make them drunk. They had no immunity to liquor. It was a weakness in their physiology and a very, very sad one. But I would say that this was true. They drank very little, many of them, and were thoroughly drunk. I know because at times I knew how much they had had. 
Well, our time is just about up. Thank you all for listening. Keep the questions coming. We have a number of others that uh, we couldn't get to this time, but we will get to next time. Good night and God bless you.